Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to speaking today with Louisa Wall. Louisa is a member of the New Zealand Labour Party and has been an MP since 2008. She's held a variety of roles across the public sector as a policy advisor and community advocate. Louisa's work is founded on a commitment to universal human rights and she's particularly focused on promoting the rights of gender and sexual minorities. And it was in fact Louisa who introduced a private member's bill in 2012 to give same-sex couples the legal right to marry in New Zealand, which was passed in 2013. Louisa also had a highly successful sporting career as both a silver fern and also a black fern, including being named New Zealand Women's Rugby Player of the Year in 1997. Kia ora, Louisa, and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Ah, You're welcome. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your your career journey along the way. If I may, to start a little while back, back when you were a child or maybe even a teenager, what, what were your career aspirations? Well, I think really early on I loved sport and actually my my passions throughout those early years were, were 100% sport focused. I remember vividly watching Martina Navratilova mm. play tennis. I remember watching the All Blacks with my dad and, and so I have to say professional sports person, although at that time, you know, the opportunities were, were limited for women who played or and girls who played netball as I did initially and then rugby. But the actual career that I thought I would get into was actually the police. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, kind of like a Starsky and Hutch chips. Yeah, that was me. I thought catching bad guys would have been pretty cool vocation. And in fact, when I made the Silver Ferns when I was 17, I, I went through the testing regime for the New Zealand police, mm. did the physical test yes. and some of the, the the written tests that you had to go through. So, yeah, I just wanted to, I guess, serve, serve society, serve the community. So the police was one of my early aspirations from a career perspective. Mm, and interesting that, you know, your career still has headed in that way in terms of serving society and serving community. It sounds like that's still been a common thread throughout. Yes, I mean, I think when I when I look back at why I was particularly interested, and in it was that whole, yeah, protect the community, get the bad guy or girl, as it may be, but really be one of the, I guess, arbiters of, of good behaviour in society and how you want society to be, uh, which, which has been part of my journey to Parliament, to be honest. My, my qualifications have led me here too. I have a an undergrad degree in, in social policy and social work, and then I did a master's in social policy. And a lot of the areas that I've chosen to focus on, human rights, issues to do with families, um, in the education sector, I worked at AUT as the equity advisor, and I've worked at CMDHB and Māori Health with a, with a focus on disability rights. 
So everything that I've done really has been about fighting for either minority or marginalised communities and holding the public system accountable, really, to meeting the needs of those communities through the various roles that I've had. Mm. And what what is it, if I may ask, what is it particularly about, you know, fighting for the rights of minorities that, that drives you? And, and again, I think this goes back to that whole, I want to be a police officer. Mm. It's, it's the, I guess, the, the fundamental principle of, of good versus bad, right versus wrong, kind of a moral imperative that compels you to step up and to act. Um, I'm not a passive person. Some people recently called me abrasive, but I was thinking about that as a terminology. And in fact, you know, if you look at my marriage equality legislation, some of the things that I've championed, whether it be period poverty or fighting against racist cartoons published by um, Fairfax Media, there has to be an element of abrasion. And certainly through sport, I learn to be aggressive because you can't be passive on the on the rugby field or the netball court. And so I do take very principled, um, strong stances. I don't sit on the fence. I am very black and white. Um, but when I take a position and I believe in something, then I'll, I will fight for it, literally, because it's something that I passionately believe in. And so a lot of the initiatives that I've got involved with have ended up being quite emotional and there is an expansion of or expression of of emotion and passion because I, that's just me. That's how I played sport. That's how I do life. I don't do it um, quietly. And because I end up fighting for literally minority and marginalised groups, it's always against something else or someone else or a, a greater power because fundamentally these end up being about issues of power. Who has it? Who doesn't have it? You know, racism, discrimination, highlighting those, trying to get redress for people who society is marginalised. So, yeah, abrasive's not a bad description of how I behave then. You know, that's that's fair enough. I quite, I quite like the way you've sort of, you've appropriated the word therefore for yourself and have, have kind of come to terms with it. And I think it's, for me, it's often interesting to hear the, the words that are used particularly to describe women who challenge the status quo or look to take leadership in a certain area, whereas if you apply the same words to men, they might be seen as more positive. So, like, for example, aggressive or fighting for something. I think often if, often yeah. as women, those, those words are not necessarily seen as a positive light. No, they're not, because we are being unconventional. We are challenging the norm. So to do that supposedly isn't a role that women should have. But the reality of change in this country is that it's only happened because women have stood up and fought and used their voice and used the different tools that they had, petition with thousands of people signing it four times to get, you know, the suffragist movement into a position where we could get all the men in parliament to, to say, yes, women can have the vote. You know, but it took 26 years after we got the vote before one of us was allowed to stand here and another 14 years, so 40 years after we got the vote before one of us were actually in Parliament. Mm-hmm. And so I found in my life that uh, change doesn't happen organically. The organic nature of issues provides an environment for change, but actually change fundamentally happens because it's forced change. People speak out, they put in bills, they advocate, they mobilise. And I think we're, the, the world's going through a bit of a phenomenon around colonisation and racism at the moment. And, and, yeah, there's just always seems to be a time and a place to be to advocate for the change that you want to see. 
So I'm getting Gandhi-ish, but it really is about being the change you want to see in the world and not abdicating that responsibility when you can do something about it to somebody else. And it's it's also a brave choice because it means coming up against criticism and abuse in some cases. You know, I guess I'd be interested to hear, you're right, you know, New Zealand in many ways was very progressive, first country in the world to give women the vote. We've got had three female prime ministers now. At the same time, you know, the, the name of the podcast, I guess, is The Female Career. What type of barriers or, or obstacles or challenges have you faced as a, as a woman in your career? I think my throughout my career, I end up facing a, but you're a Māori woman lesbian, mm. which means there's elements of racism, there's elements of sexism, there's elements of homophobia. And I don't quite know my place in the world. I get a lot of that. And I have to say from men and women, white men, white women, and some brown men too, because I am stroppy. I am abrasive. I am aggressive. I will fight for what I believe in. I'm not afraid to use my voice. I'm not intimidated. I don't do things because of self-interest or because somebody might give me a particular job or I might get something out of it. That's not what drives me. And obviously within the political domain, that can can be quite isolating, but it hasn't deterred me from doing what I believe is right and advocating for things that I believe in. But I do believe in the power of knowledge and evidence and information and being able to share that because it fundamentally should compel people, including myself, to change our positions with information. And it's then how we use that and I guess the humility of those processes to concede to somebody else. But I do have to admit that in coming to a position, I've gone through all that analysis before I actually then come out and say, I believe in whatever it might be. And in politics, sometimes people see it as a fine line because you're kind of weighing up what your electorate might think, what your peers might think, who the opposition may be. But I don't do that assessment. I don't know. It's just the sporting part of me. I just see the try line. And it doesn't matter if there's 10 people who are trying to tackle me. If I've got the ball, then it's straight up the guts usually. Uh, And I'm not afraid to be tackled. Mm. And you've talked a bit about your your sporting career, and I wonder if we can step back into it. I was I was interested to understand. You know, things have progressed for women's sport, and um, particularly at a national level, it's great to see the professionalism of it. When you were a silver fern and a black fern, was it was it professional, or were you still holding down a job or trying to study at the same time? Oh, we were absolutely professional, mm-hmm. but I was a student. I was a cleaner. I was then working full time, but. I passionately believed in representing my country. Mm. So, you know, it's the and and and. You end up doing a whole lot of things and when you're young, you don't think about the fact that you've just trained for 20 hours a week, you've just worked for 16 hours a week, you've got, you know, a full-time study that you have to do. You, you kind of just do it and, and that is the optimism and the energy of youth. But when I think about it now, It took a lot of determination and hard work, but mostly it was about a mindset. I'm very goal-orientated, believe in dreams and aspirations, and and that we we individually have an ability to achieve those. But my political work and my sports, my teamwork and, and, and sports teams has taught me that you do have to achieve things with others, and you find people that um, share the same passion and vision and commitment as you. 
and in the political space, to be fair, I mean, our marriage bill wouldn't have got across the line unless we had national MPs to support us. I mean, the Greens as a party, 100% supported, but, you know, there was also division within the Labour caucus. It wasn't a a universal kind of 100% support for, for marriage equality. So it meant that I had to try some different things and we created a cross-party group and we had representatives from the National Party and myself and the Green Party and then a whole lot of other supporters who were passionate about achieving the law reform as well that came on board. So, yeah, I and I haven't been afraid to do that, even though it wasn't convention. You know, politics is very has been a New Zealand two-party confrontational. We believe in this, you believe in that, you're the red team, we're the blue team, whatever it might be, and never the two should form any kind of grand coalitions about anything. But what my political experience has taught me is that if the cope-up is right, if the reason you're doing it is right, then actually you absolutely can work across political parties, across the House, and form these alliances that drive social change and societal change. Mm. And a wonderful way to see that coming through from your sporting career. As you said, you know, both netball, rugby, team sports, you've got to work together, find that common purpose, and then bringing that now to bear in your in your political career. Yeah, and working with, in this instance, with the, the LGBT community, with the social justice community, which included the unions, disability advocates, uh, working with groups called Legalise Love, which was just beautiful when I think about it now, who had been lobbying for a few years. There were groups who organised petitions. There were groups who formed in different parts of New Zealand to drive the campaign. We had young people engaged in politics like never before. I mean, it was quite phenomenal when I think about it. And that was um, in 2011. I'd become the MP for Manurewa. Mm. I was given the responsibility of of chairing this Rainbow Caucus. And so my responsibility was relationship equality before the law. So I had a mandate to to work in those spaces. But yeah, it was was a pretty amazing um, experience, to be honest, because I also had to lead the parliamentary process. And I hadn't experienced before. So it's a good way to learn how this place works, that's for sure. I, I can imagine, goodness me, and not and not an easy journey and a one that, you know, would have taken a huge amount of effort to to get across the try line, as you as you so eloquently put it in terms of that sporting <laughs> analogy. And I can hear some of the, the passion that comes through and in terms of, of what kind of motivates you. What do you what do you really love about your current work? I guess what I love the most is being able to help people. I've always been really clear that my job is to hold the public accountable for meeting the needs of New Zealand citizens and residents. And when you're an electorate MP, you have constituents. So my job is to advocate and be their biggest champion. And if the system uh, isn't meeting their needs, then I have to understand it and hold them to account. And if they are, then my job is to translate uh, into a language that my community can understand and so that they can either put themselves in a different position or actually we have to access different support systems to meet their need. Uh, Unfortunately, and I say that because that seems to be the nature of a lot of my constituency engagement, people come when they're in trouble Mm. or if it's crisis or if they've had, you know, the discontent or lack of uh, resolution of their issues with whoever it may be, DHBs, ACC, IRD, um, MSD, whatever it might be, 
they come to me. But I've tried to be a lot more proactive and also trying to involve my community in a lot more of the, yeah, the proactive kind of systems-based opportunities we have to help develop the, you know, the local board plan and the Auckland plan and kind of what facilities do we want in our community and how can we all collectively work together to meet some of the needs in the community. But it is a very full responsibility and also privilege to serve an electorate. But it's 24-7, and I mean it literally. Sometimes you can get calls in the middle of the night, you get messages either through Messenger or text or Facebook or email, whatever it might be. So it's, it's a difficult job because you kind of end up getting into terrible habits and being responding to texts at two o'clock in the morning or whenever it might be because you're awake. So there are some health and safety issues, I have to say, mm. um, and, and how you practice as an MP and you've got to be really clear about setting some, not rules, but just having ways to monitor how well you are because it's very easy to get incredibly exhausted in this role. Mm. And how how do you then look after yourself or maintain some kind of balance and what is a very full-on job? The workload, you just get used to it. And then it's usually actually about taking chunks of time where you'll have a whole week off. And so rather than try and moderate, and especially when the house is sitting, I mean, we lead interesting lives. I mean, I had a seven o'clock interview on Monday morning this week, which meant for me I had to get up at five to get to the gym because I, when I'm in Wellington, I always aim to go to the gym. It's like every morning I've got to go to the gym, even if it's just 30 minutes on the bike, a few stretches, and that's part of me trying to be healthy and well. But we don't rise until 10 o'clock at night. And actually that was Tuesday morning because I came down Monday, had a meeting, had to get up Tuesday. And then, yeah, stayed here until 10. We'll be here until 10 o'clock tonight. When we go into urgency, it'll be till midnight and we start at nine in the morning. So we had extended sitting. So I was in the house for three hours this morning and I'll be in the house tonight until 10 o'clock. So, yeah, it's a very um, kind of multidimensional job. There's different aspects. There's the housework. I chair the House Select Committee. I'm also on foreign affairs. And then you have your electorate work. And with that usually comes lots of invitations and kind of balancing and managing all of that. And in the beginning, it was very hard to say no. Mm -hmm. But then you realise really early on that you can't say yes to everything and you need to take time out because literally it's you could just be running 24 hours a day and still not meet um, all the demand, which is why you need very good staff too. So I've got some pretty amazing people who work with me, in my, particularly in my Manurua electorate office. And it sounds like they're, you know, as you say, it's full on and, you know, coming from that sporting background in the, the early days, you know, you're not afraid of, of hard work, but at the same time, having the exercise in place, having the people around to support you, learning how to say no, it sounds like those things are kind of serving you well and sometimes taking some time off as, as well just to just to recharge. It all helps for, for your balance. Yeah. And, and obviously having a loving wife and a supportive family mm. and really good friends. You know, there are things that happen that are confidential. There are things that happen where you have to follow certain processes. So you need to have um, systems in, in place to maintain that confidentiality, but also to talk through 
you know, some of the issues that you're you're facing and the decisions you have to make. We touched a little bit about, you know, some of the negative aspects of, of the job. I've had death threats. I had a lot of messages during the marriage equality debate that said I was the devil, that I was going to burn in hell. There were only a couple of threats to my office and to me personally, where the police intervened or security intervened here and they monitored um, the people and one of them the police visited and actually said, you know, that's a threat. But you you do have to put that to one side, you know, and you have to rise above it because people will say you're useless and there's a lot of criticism of women MPs sometimes about what we look like, how we dress. And I find in political dis- discussions, I always play the play the ball, not the man, so to speak. But very easily in those types of engagements, if people aren't winning, they'll play the man and they'll try and kick you. Or again, I can equate it to to sport and cricket and the sledging. And they're trying to, you know, put you off your game and um, distract you. But really, it's all forms of harassment, bullying, and intimidation. And so I don't want to say I've got used to it because getting used to it means it's normal and I should put up with it. But I've just started calling it out and actually making sure that candidates and other colleagues know that if it's death threats or people say they're going to burn down your house, actually it is a crime and you can contact the police and the police should be able to intervene and find the people who are are doing it. But the reality of politics or or any public position is that you're kind of your head is up and you, you sometimes find yourself as a target whether you want to be the target or not. Yeah, so it, it is very challenging. I mean, yeah, probably in the last year, the other big issue that I've tackled and been quite um, open about is the whole the, the issue with trans women, being women mostly. There isn't, doesn't seem to be the corollary of a whole lot of men saying, trans men aren't men, it's just women who have a fundamental problem with trans women and it's just so vitriolic and it's hateful and it's, for me, it's just fundamental principles of human rights and people are being discriminated against or if there are issues of equity or inequality and I can do something about it, then I will try. I think that's the responsibility you have as a, a member of parliament, someone in a privileged position you have to use that privilege for good. You know, where does that come from? I think that's all about values, beliefs, parents. I mean, religion could inform others of us, but I've got this ethic and imperative within me that says I I have to intervene. It's almost like a, yeah, I can't just sit back and do nothing. Mm. And, you know, it's interesting, yeah, I think, you know, politics is that extreme end in terms of being in the public eye and taking controversial stands and therefore, and, and in many cases, getting abused for, for that. But, you know, I've I've seen it in the in all the corporate world as well in terms of yeah. women perhaps being afraid to take unpopular stands or to take on more and more senior leadership roles for the added pressure, attention and potential abuse that, that, that might come with it. You know, I think politics is a is, is hard graft in terms of the, <laughs> the, that, you know, you're really in the public eye. But at the same time, I think for me, there is 
from a lot of the women that I've, I've coached and worked with, just this underlying fear maybe of if I put myself out there, if I challenge, if I say something that is going to really rattle the cage or shake the boat, then what what might that mean for me and how people treat me? So yeah, really interesting to hear your, your take on that. To flip it around, Louisa, if you kind of look back on your career, yeah. what are some of your proudest career moments? Oh gosh, well, the first time I, I got to sing the national anthem, mm-hmm. <laughs> doing the leading it actually for the Black Ferns. So a lot of them aren't about specific victories, even though I've had them. You know, having my parents watch me and the pride that they took, especially my dad, in my achievements. So kind of always had this philosophical belief that, you know, me fulfilling my potential was actually about honouring my parents, that they gifted me a whole lot of talents and skills and so it really isn't about me so my life's not really mine it's the generations generation before me and really we bask in the success of our children and I really do believe it so yeah what you just talked about you know that little warning system within us that goes danger danger Will Robinson I don't really have it Mm -hmm. and then I don't really understand why people have got problems with me when I take these very Strong stands against things. I don't. I, I wish people didn't take things so personally. I mean, I believe in in Maori, and we call it kopapa. You know, I believe in things, and I will, as I said before, fight for those things. But it should never be personal. You know, wanting two people of the same sex to be able to obtain a, a marriage license and to marry one another. Why should that affect anybody other than those two people in that instance? Why are a whole lot of other people so against the fact, you know, that the, the reality of a lot of the discussions that we that I have in, in the space, especially around LGBT rights, it goes back to the formation of democracy. We inherited a Westminster system, the influence of the Church of England, and that, you know, the intertwining of church and state, whereas... Actually, in, in, in democracies, it's about citizens, individual citizens and, you know, that the state has to work on behalf of all those citizens. They can't discriminate against any citizen. And kind of unpacking that whole fabric and framework that is, you know, around the world. Still got eight Pacific or seven Pacific countries who criminalise homosexuality. And you try and have discussions about citizenship, democracy, the fact that they inherited it from us, if you're the Cook Islands, and we inherited from the UK. But the religion is such a huge influence and, and our religious leaders still believe what they believe. They're taught these doctrines that still govern how they view the world. And so we're evil. It's I won't say it's fascinating, but it is kind of it, it is what it is. It's a truism. And the world is kind of going through this process now of looking at itself through the lens of colonisation, which, to be fair, only Indigenous peoples have had to do because we're the ones that are so subjugated and oppressed. Mm-hmm. And and I can, you know, see in here in your work, there is that sort of strong historical contextual element in terms of, of kind of what and <laughs> what informs you, which which is which is important. You know, we don't sit in isolation in terms of just being in 2020. There are hundreds and thousands of years of, of history that kind of sits sits before that and and and, and informs how how things are today. 
if I and it's the same for women. Like if I think about the whole marriage process, there was some feminist, some lesbian woman who didn't support my marriage bill because they fundamentally didn't support marriage because of what it um, signified for women. That women were chattels of their fathers handed over to be a chattel of a man. You know, it was there was some incredibly interesting discussions, but. Just as we've had racism, I mean, the influence of sexism and women's perception of ourselves and our roles in society and the fact that we're, you know, 23% of, of private boards in New Zealand and we have a government that's committed to 50-50, but what are we going to do about it? So I'm a member of Māori Women's Welfare League of Pacifica, of Global Women. I go to the National Council of Women AGMs. I go to Business and Professional Women been to commission on the status of women. So, I mean, we're in the same situation. I mean, this year is incredibly significant for women. It's the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Declaration where Hillary Clinton famously said, you know, women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. You know, are we, are we any, how far advanced are we in 25 years? And she said that. Mm. And, Gina, it was one of the other things that I was a little bit surprised about, I think, having come from New Zealand originally, but having spent 17 years overseas coming back. And it was that private sector board um, stat, actually, that really struck me. It was kind of like, hang on a second, what, 23% women on private sector boards? And the public sector, obviously, is, is much further progressed. You know, what, what do you think's going on? What do you think is, what are the reasons behind that number being so low? Well, it's institutional sexism, and it's men choosing their mates to sit on boards with them. You know, I mean, the reality of, of governance historically has just been like for like. Men who can go and play golf with each other, who grew up together at grandma or wherever it might have been, who socialised together, then they can get through things through the board easily. Mm-hmm. I mean, diversity and inclusion necessarily will mean being a brace of people who are prepared to challenge the status quo. And that's actually, I think, um, if people are really honest, the biggest challenge about diversity and inclusion. These people are going to have to be, you know, be out of their comfort zones. They're going to have to take into consideration ethnicity, possibly, gender, possibly, not have these generic ways of looking at the world that benefit themselves. And that's the challenge that we have. I mean, for a lot of our systems and structures, they were designed by a particular group of human beings for themselves. That's the privilege of being a male and a white male. Mm. And you know, for, for me, absolutely you're right, you know, in terms of the diversity piece, it means that conversations are going to be probably involve more conflict, probably are going to take longer time. So, yeah. you know, that, that, that doesn't necessarily make them more, more appealing when you think always about diversity on a board, but hopefully equally brings out better outcomes for whatever organisation that they might be serving. Um, Louisa, where do you see your career heading in the future? And that's a very good question, I have to say, because obviously I'm going into a fourth election, but this election I'm standing on the list and it kind of has allowed me, I guess, a scope to think about what next, 48. So in terms of a career change, there is still an opportunity for me to have another career uh, and what that may look like, I'm not quite sure. I certainly understand Parliament's role in developing legislation and obviously the recipients of that legislation end up being the public service. So I could 
go back to the public service. I have been asked periodically if I'm interested in kind of you know lecturing at university or engaging in some kind of political studies. So yeah, and, I, and I'm having continued catch-ups with my master's supervisor, um, Dame Professor Marilyn Waring, who has talked to me a few times in the last couple of years about doing my PhD. Mm. So yeah, I, I, it's kind of one of those, there, there are many opportunities, it just depends which one um, I take at any particular point in time. But obviously right now I'm focused on the 2020 election and, and making sure I contribute to our Labour team so that we're re-elected and we have an opportunity to continue the agenda, which, to be quite frank, going forward uh, will all be about, you know, post kind of our response to COVID, it'll be about recovery and rebuilding. And um, the impact obviously has been huge. So there's going to be many challenges in the future about how we as a country, how we as communities and families respond to the current current situation. Mm, absolutely. It's going to be a challenging few years to come. And at the same time, it'll be interesting to see where your career takes you. Um, <laughs> it sounds like there's a few few possible routes for that, that might happen in the future. And my last my last question for you, Louisa, have you, you know, what what career advice would you have for, for other girls or, or other women? Oh, I, I think my piece of advice is look, fundamentally you have to believe in yourself. And I've always believed in myself. I had a very supportive mum and dad, but my father particularly, when I was very young, said to me I could do anything and be anything. And I remember I'd, I was kind of playing netball and I'd always got into teams when I was younger. And, you know, so when I was, what was it, 13, I got into the under-16s, 14, and the under-18s, 15. I thought I'd get in the under-21s. Anyway... I ended up being asked to trial for the senior team as a 16-year-old and just wanted to play with my mates in the under-21s, by the way, but I thought that would be a good next step. And my father just said to me, Louisa, what are your goals? And I said, I want to be a silver fern. And he said, well, you only really have two choices. He said, you either go to the trials tomorrow and get in the senior team, and this is for South Waikastle to go to nationals, or that's it, you're giving up nipple. And I was like, what? And he said, well, if you really want to be a silver fern, you've only got one choice. And so he took me to the trials the next day and I got into the team. I went to nationals that year in Palmerston North. I played every game and some of our build-up games were against Wellington. So I got to play against people like Waitamanu and Sandra Edge, who was playing for Wellington. I got spotted by one of the selectors. I got picked to go into the Young Internationals. We had three tests against the Australian Institute of Sport the following year, and, and Lynn Parker was the coach. The following, oh, the later on that year, Lois Muir retired, and she was no longer going to be the coach of the Silver Ferns. And then the following March, Lynn was made the coach, and she picked me to trial, and she picked me in the Silver Ferns as a 17-year-old. And so that's kind of been my life, really. Like if you really want to do something, if you really, really want to do something, then you have to believe you can do it. And so I never doubted my abilities, I have to say, mm. and I don't. And so that is my biggest I kind of, and it's a message is that we have to believe in ourselves and each other, but we also have to surround ourselves with people 
who can support us to get to where we want to go. I mean, I think that's fundamental. And I had that. I had that from my parents and I had the love and the belief. But if, if you have that, then actually you're, all of us are unstoppable because we end up sabotaging ourselves. Or we have friends in our network who create self-doubt. But it's that self-doubt that ultimately stops any of us from achieving what we really want to. And so I learned really early on to take responsibility for the outcomes that happen. Take responsibility for getting picked for different teams by the amount of preparation I do. Take responsibility for my meetings by making sure I read my papers and I understand what the discussions are going to be about so I can contribute. So I'm never passive. I'm never there just to eat my lunch or be a passenger. That wastes my time and everyone else's time, which is why you always have an opinion about something. Mm. So... Yeah, I hope I hope people find that <laughs> um, interesting. But I do have to say, when you behave like that, though, some people won't like you. But I also realise that I don't never played sport to be liked. I never played to be a black fern to be liked. I played and I trained and I participated the way I did because I wanted to be a world champion. I think is that there's some wonderful advice in there. I, you know, I know from coaching a lot of women that voice of self-doubt is pretty loud. And so actually trying to channel a little bit more of that belief in yourself as well as getting those supportive people around you and, and taking responsibility for the hard work that it takes. Some wonderful advice. Louisa, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing some of your career journey. Oh, kia ora, Anna, and thank you for the work that you're doing. I think sharing these stories, if we can inspire and support each other as women, then obviously, for me, it means we're advancing and we'll try and get to 50-50 on those private boards. That would be that would be a wonderful achievement. <laughs> there we go. Hey, look, thanks again, and uh, we'll look forward to staying in touch. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.